This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, planning committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. Assessing and Addressing Complex Pain. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao. Low back pain, osteoarthritis, and headaches are among the top 10 most common complaints patients have when seeing a doctor. What they all have in common is pain. Pain accounts for more than half of ER visits. And in 2006, the CDC released a report showing one in 10 adults in the United States have pain lasting longer than a year. Pain has a huge impact on a person's quality of life and well-being. So what exactly causes pain? It's probably the oldest medical problem in the world and transcends every age, gender, and ethnicity. Over time, there have been numerous theories. In religious texts, pain was thought to be a test from God to strengthen faith. Plato and Aristotle considered pain to be an emotion. Aristotle even postulated that as an emotion, the central origin of pain must be the heart. Hippocrates believed pain to be an imbalance of the four humors, also known as body fluids, such as blood, phlegm, black bile, and yellow bile. It wasn't until the 1600s that the brain became implicated. Philosopher, mathematician, and scientist René Descartes theorized in the treatise of man that pain traveled from the point of origin via nerve fibers to the brain, which then signaled the sensation of pain. Fast forward now a couple hundred years to the 1800s, and there you'll find physicians largely, largely considered pain to be a sign of vitality and showed the patient's strength. The stronger the sensation of pain, the greater the patient's supposed vitality. In fact, when surgical anesthesia was introduced, there was a great debate about whether or not relief from pain would delay healing. Treatment of pain is almost as old as these theories. 
The first sign of opium cultivation date back to 5000 BCE. As the Buddhists say, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. Here to teach us how to evaluate complex pain and make suffering optional is Dr. Sarah Ehrman. Dr. Ehrman is an assistant professor of palliative medicine at Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. Sarah, welcome to MedNet. Thank you so much for having me, Jingjing. Sarah, I heard your MedPeds, which is near and dear to my heart because I'm MedPeds. What drew you to palliative care and treating pain? I am MedPeds, that's correct. Uh, it's funny the way life works sometimes. You start down a career path for one reason and end up continuing it for another. I think I really liked the external perspective of a MedPeds clinician, always looking from one side of the fence to the other and thinking critically from a medicine perspective, what are they doing on pediatrics? And from a pediatrics perspective, what are they doing on medicine? And I felt that palliative medicine has kind of a similar feel. It's about looking at what you do from a different perspective and thinking critically about it, particularly with how we communicate with people. I think the things that stuck with me from residency were the cases that everybody griped about. The family that doesn't get it, the patient with nightly call outs for IV opioids, patients who had substance use disorder who'd leave the hospital against medical advice and then come back the very next day. I think we kind of all struggled with those cases, mostly because we felt like we weren't doing a very good job um, and felt like we were failing in some way. <coughs> Excuse me. In general, if there's ever a trouble spot or a kind of a rub, most of my friends would tell you that I am whatever the opposite of avoidant is and kind of only running towards it. And that's how I thought a palliative medicine fellowship might be helpful for me because those were the areas where I struggled. Uh, and I was very right. Uh, it's not like every single one of those troublesome situations are fixable, but it turns out that with the right training, <coughs> Excuse me. It turns out that with the right training uh, and knowledge, most of those situations can be improved upon, which is enormously gratifying and which is why I continue. That's really great to hear, Sarah. Um, I'm sorry to ask such a basic question, but what exactly is complex pain? Uh, ask a basic question, get a complicated answer. I think of complex pain as anything beyond a simple physical injury that results in a self-limited kind of physiologic pain response. Pain in the natural world serves a purpose. An injury occurs, the organism experiences unpleasant sensations and guards against the area of injury to allow for healing. It's a way of survival. I think of complex pain uh, as when there's factors that amplify the pain experience, uh, that have a negative impact on somebody's well-being. It's often chronic. It's often associated with pain signaling dysregulation of one variety or another, and it can be really a challenge to treat. Thanks, Sarah. I'm sure you'll dive into that a lot further. For our audience, you may have noticed, but we're filming remotely today due to COVID-19-related reasons. As a reminder, we'd love to hear from you. So if you have any questions about today's program or suggestions for future programs, click that icon on the bottom right-hand corner of the webcast and send it our way. Don't forget, you can also access our program via podcast by searching for MedNet21 CME on your preferred podcast app. Sarah, take it away. Okay. 
Well, once again, thank you for letting me come and talk with all of you about this topic, diagnosing and managing complex pain. As I said just a moment ago, I think the inspiration for this came out of some experiences in residency that I had and that I know that others have had as well. Being on call and getting a late night page that you just don't know what to do with it. And it causes a lot of stress as a clinician. So here's an example of the page, patients complaining about uncontrolled pain in the middle of the night. You don't know the patient, they want IV opioids and you're not sure what to do or how to approach the situation. And you feel like you don't have time or the energy or the know-how to do it. So with this talk, we're gonna talk about how to address this page basically. We're gonna talk about diagnosing the major components of complex pain. We're gonna identify appropriate treatments. We're gonna distinguish that from substance use disorder because complex pain and substance use disorder are quite distinct. And we're gonna describe specific strategies for how to actually communicate with your patients about their pain. I said this and I'll say it again, this is extremely important. Chronic pain and complex pain is not the same as a substance use disorder. There is overlap, but it's important to recognize that they are distinct entities with distinct ways of thinking about them and distinct ways to diagnose them. I also encourage folks to use appropriate language when speaking about patients with chronic pain or with opioid use disorder or other substance use disorders. There's language that carries baggage with it. There's language that can feel accusatory as opposed to descriptive from a medical standpoint. So using terms like substance use disorder instead of addict, <coughs> opioid instead of narcotic, Speaking about a risky medication as opposed to a risky patient are ways of destigmatizing substance use disorder so that we can operationalize it as a medical diagnosis and think about treatment as we would for other diagnoses. One of the most important questions then is what is pain? And this is where we're gonna spend a lot of time talking. We have our traditional pain scale here, but it's really Dane Cicely Saunders, who's the foundation founder of the modern hospice and palliative care movement, who described pain as more than just a physical experience. She described it as total suffering across multiple domains of a person's life, cultural, spiritual, psychological, and on. And that's really important to think about as we think about how our pain system actually functions within our bodies. So to make this practically applicable to you as clinicians, the concepts we're gonna talk about are meant to give you a better framework to, for how to think about pain. And we're gonna go through the pain system on a very sort of superficial conceptual level because it's going to help us think about how we design a treatment plan and diagnose a patient. So forgive the basic appearance of this drawing, but I really want to just take us through. Pain starts with a pain signal. Um, we have nociceptors in our periphery. They detect signals 
like mechanical stretch or compression. They detect chemical signals from cytokines. They can detect temperature changes and they can detect stretch and shear and all these things. And what happens is that they send a single signal northward through the peripheral nerve. They generate an action potential that runs up the peripheral nerve. That signal reaches the spinal cord and immediately decussates. If some of you are thinking back to your early training, there's immediate decussation. And that signal, as it, decu as it decussates, gets modified by the surrounding neurons and then ascends through the spinothalamic tract. It is this central spinal cord processing where opioids actually have their site of action for pain. And we'll come back to that. Once that signal ascends, there's additional input from the supratentorium that modifies that signal. So whatever a person is attending to at the moment, whatever they're consciously focused on, life, affects how they process that pain signal and how they consciously experience it. And if you look at this system, it turns out that it's actually pretty complex, especially once you get to the CNS. And when a system is complex, it's one liable to go wrong and two liable to break and three liable to go wrong and break. And so when this system breaks or when pain comes from more than one area in this system, that's when we think about complex pain. So it's really then important to understand exactly how this system breaks down because that can affect the type of pain that the person's experiencing. And it also affects how we think about treatment. So the first type of pain here is nociceptive pain. This is physiologic, this is normal pain signaling. This is, uh, you have a normal pain stimulus hitting your peripheral nerve uh, receptor. And in response to that, the area can get inflamed. It becomes more tender than it usually should be. This is something called physiologic hyperalgesia that occurs locally. It's meant to tell your body, hey, protect this area. And the area is more sensitive than it usually is to external stimulus. When we're thinking about diagnosing nociceptive pain, it's pretty traditional descriptions of pain. It's usually well localized. It's sharp or aching or throbbing. Most people describe it as worse with movement and better when you don't touch the area or leave it alone. Usually there's a really obvious clinical explanation for what's going on. When you have nociceptive pain in the viscera, so the internal organs, this is also a type of nociceptive pain. However, uh, it's more poorly localized. It can be described as stretching or squeezing or cramping or dull. Sometimes patients have a hard time describing it. But again, you usually have an explanation for the etiology of the pain that's fairly obvious. When we think about treatments for nociceptive pain, these are treatments that try to address the cause of the, the signaling in the area. So things like NSAIDs and steroids can reduce inflammation, reduce cytokine stimulation of that physiologic hyperalgesia, reduce activation of the nociceptors at the site. 
um, and thereby reduce pain. We can think about lidocaine, which can block action potential through voltage-gated sodium channels. And so that can have an effect locally uh, on that peripheral nerve and prevent a nociceptive pain signal from ascending into the spinothalamic tract. And then opioids, which work at the central spinal cord, can also dull or block that signal. Next, we think about peripheral nerve pain. So this is a type of neuropathic pain that results from axonal damage. When the axon of a nerve is injured, you either get absent resting potential or erratic signaling like a frayed wire on the fritz. And the CNS does its best to interpret that signaling. Because the signaling's erratic, you have bursts of action potentials or no action potentials or a mix. Patients will describe their pain as either burning or pins and needles or shooting or numbness, and it can fluctuate pretty rapidly between the two or three. Treatments for peripheral nerve pain often involve trying to dampen that erratic signal or to distract from that erratic signal. There is evidence for SNRIs, which is selective norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors to address neuropathic pain. And we think this actually works centrally by re-regulating signals that descend from the brain through the spinal cord. And it can alter that milieu that the nerve signal crosses through as the signal the pain signal decusates across the spine, over to the uh, spinothalamic tract. Similarly with TCAs, so tricyclic antidepressants such as nortriptyline, these medications we think work also by altering norepinephrine signaling. Gabapentin and pregabalin are CNS depressants that work on calcium channels and affect GABA signaling. And these may also block these ascending abnormal signals. Topical treatments such as capsaicin and menthol can also help with peripheral neuropathic pain. But the way they do this is they create lots of other strange stimulus around the area so that your body pays attention to that burning or cool sensation and ignores the abnormal neuropathic pain signal. TENS units have a similar, we think, a similar way of working to help with neuropathic pain. Systemic lidocaine to block action potentials from ascending can also be helpful. And opioids, of course, which work above the side of the problem, above that injured peripheral nerve, can also block neuropathic pain signals from the periphery. Central nerve pain or central neuropathic pain involves dysregulation of ascending and descending signals from the brain through the spinal cord and vice versa. As I mentioned, a simple action potential crosses 
uh, into the spinal cord and crosses up the spinothalamic tract, but there's a lot of modification that can happen to that signal. And so central neuropathic pain is a dysregulation of how that signal gets modified. And this can result in subcentral hyperalgesia. And we're gonna spend a little bit of time going through this in more detail because quite a few folks with complex pain have dysregulation in this area. Most of the patients who have this type of pain typically have a chronic pain history. The pain that they feel is vaguely described. It can be diffuse or migratory. The quality and character can change. And the other hallmark of this is it doesn't tend to respond for very long when opioids are increased. We're gonna talk in more detail now about central hyperalgesia using some conceptual, a conceptual drawing. This is conceptual, this is not anatomic, this is not even a complete conceptual drawing, but I really wanted to use this to illustrate how we think about some of our medications for you guys, just on a practical level. So we have a pain signal that comes into the spinal cord. We know that mu opioid receptors are involved in modifying how this signal is processed. And we know we have medications like morphine, which bind to the mu opioid receptor. And so when we give somebody morphine, which is an opioid agonist, it binds to this new opioid receptor and this pain signal as it crosses through the spinal cord gets muted. And so the patient will feel pain relief. Turns out that beyond new opioid receptors, there are a lot of other receptors and neurotransmitters and signaling involved in this. And when mu opioid receptors are activated, they in turn, over time, activate and upregulate NMDA receptor activity. And when NMDA receptor activity is upregulated, this alters the threshold for which a patient needs to experience pain. And the pain signal can pass through here. And what ultimately happens is that the patient begins to experience something called hyperalgesia, which is increased sensitivity to painful signals, a painful stimulus that wouldn't be so bad is suddenly more bad than it should be for a patient. What this comes out is the patient complains of increased pain. So being the good clinicians that we are, sometimes we say, okay, more pain, more opioid. So we give additional opioid. And then we increase the activity of the mu opioid receptor. And for a short period of time, the patient will experience increased pain relief. But we also upregulate the NMDA receptors further. And over time, we saturate the mu opioid receptors. And then the only thing we're doing is upregulating the NMDA receptors and the patient will experience more hyperalgesia paradoxically. This is uh, one of the hallmarks of actual opioid neurotoxicity. Opioids, importantly, are not the only thing that can result in central hyperalgesia. There are many, many things that can lead to alterations in how a patient perceives pain and how pain signals are interpreted and transmitted from the spinal cord to the brain. This is just one pathway. 
But opioids, uh, when they are the cause of hyperalgesia, this is a sign of opioid neurotoxicity. This can progress if opioids are continued to escalate. So we can get allodynia, which is pain from a non-painful stimulus. You can get myoclonic jerking, encephalopathy, seizures, and even death. So when we talk about opioid-specific neurotoxicity, and we're thinking about this for our patients, history findings are really, really important. As we said, we find that opioid increases may only temporarily help somebody's pain. You end up getting side effects from the opioids without pain relief. Physical exam findings might be hyperalgesia, myoclonic jerking, or drowsiness. But importantly, if you're seeing these physical exam pain signals, it's important to stop because there may be some confounding factors. Opioid neurotoxicity is not the only thing that can result in this type of a syndrome or this type of a presentation. So it's important not to jump immediately to that conclusion. Some of the confounding factors might be that there's actually another cause of increased pain. Yes, maybe you're going up on the opioids and it's only lasting a day, but maybe the person has an evolving bowel obstruction, uh, or maybe there's another process that's going on that actually explains why they're having increased pain and why the opioids of yesterday do not work today. Another thing to think about, especially for patients who are on opioids, is that they're often on other agents to help with their pain as well. Gabapentin toxicity can mimic opioid neurotoxicity in quite a lot of ways, including encephalopathy and myoclonic jerking. And it is much more common, I would say, in my clinical experience, because especially for hospitalized patients who frequently come in with uh, kidney injuries and altered renal clearance, gabapentin can accumulate pretty dang quickly. Opioids can accumulate quickly too, depending on the opioid if there is end organ injury. And so you may actually have reduced medication clearance resulting in this syndrome. And the other thing may be, the other reason that escalating opioids may only work temporarily is that you're actually treating existential distress with opioids for pain relief. And we're gonna come back to talking about that. Okay. So if we think about treating opioid hyperalgesia, I just wanna say that treating opioid hyperalgesia is extremely complex. It requires a really in-depth knowledge of opioids and opioid-specific byproducts, and there can be real harm to a patient in treating this incorrectly, not only in terms of physical harm, but also the emotional and mental harm of needing to adjust to somebody's chronic opioid regimen. Um, so this takes a lot of care coordination and communication with multiple providers. which is why I'll just put a plug in here, is that if you think that something like this is happening to your patient, it is completely reasonable to talk to a specialist about this. That might be an anesthesia pain person, that may be a palliative care person, depending on your patient's situation. 
But I'm going to take you through just the basics of how we think about treating this so that you can understand some of the physiology behind the medication decisions that you may see. So one of the tools we have in our armamentarium is ketamine. Ketamine is a medication that blocks NMDA receptor signaling. Therefore, uh, if we block NMDA receptor signaling, we can block hyperalgesia and allow our opioids to work better. Clinically, we'll use this on the inpatient side and it will allow us to do a dose reduction of opioids. And often we will also rotate to opioid agents that are more synthetic, such as rotating from morphine to oxycodone, which, will, which has byproducts and metabolism that are less likely to result in hyperalgesia. Another example of a medication that we may use in opioid hyperalgesia is methadone, which is a full agonist opioid but which also has properties about it that block NMDA receptor activity. So for patients with chronic pain or cancer-related pain, this medication actually may be quite useful in blocking this hyperalgesia pathway. One medication that I'm not putting on here, but that is another one to think about is a medicine called buprenorphine. Buprenorphine is a partial mu opioid receptor agonist, which means that it only turns the mu opioid receptor on part way. And it also has other properties about it, such as sodium channel activity and interaction with other types of opioid receptors that may prevent hyperalgesia from developing. So back to our little cartoon pain figure here. Treatments for central neuropathic pain or the central hyperalgesia will depend on etiology because once again, it is not always related to opioids. The treatments can include SNRIs and TCAs because they similarly to how they help with peripheral nerve pain can alter the interaction between the brain and the spinal cord via norepinephrine signaling. And then we have gabapentin and pregabalin, which may also have a role here as well. When we think about how the pain system breaks, the last thing to think about is this purple area, this supertentorial processing that occurs. And it turns out that what you pay attention to matters and what's going on in your life matters when you're thinking about how the body responds to other signals. So mood matters, how you cope with things matters. If you think about getting a paper cut on a winning lottery ticket, that experience is likely to be less painful than getting your paper cut from an eviction notice. Just this, the mechanism may be exactly the same, but the experience may be completely different. Diagnosis of existential pain uh, may, is really one that is clinically made. You have to screen for the patient may be experiencing grief, anxiety, depression. They may have previous trauma related to the healthcare system. Sometimes anxiolysis, if there's a huge anxiety component, may provide some degree of pain relief. I think what's really interesting here for thinking about existential pain 
There's a 2011 study that took people with chronic pain and put them in an fMRI machine. And then they gave everybody the same painful stimulus, an electronic shock on the finger, and everybody got the same stimulus. And then they asked everybody while in the fMRI machine to rate their pain. And patients who rated their pain more highly in the moderate to severe range, as opposed to mild to moderate range, tended to light up their limbic system. And the limbic system is involved in our emotional or guttural response, our knee-jerk response, fight-or-flight response to pain or to other stimulus. And so there's definitely a role for how central processing affects the pain experience. So the treatment really is to address the underlying problem. This is why cognitive behavioral therapy may be helpful for some patients with chronic pain. Now here's a bigger question. Can opioids relieve existential pain? And the answer is yes, but sometimes the way that it relieves pain might be through the central reward system and not through the central spinal cord receptors where we hope the site of action would be. And when this happens, opioids do have a higher risk of harm. There's a spectrum of pain relief that people can get from opioids. The first kind is the kind that we hope will happen. And this is how opioids typically work for pain is that they mute an ascending pain signal from the central spinal cord. Sometimes if a patient's been experiencing pain for a minute or severe pain, once you relieve that pain, their stress about and distress about having been in so much pain is relieved. And then you get this kind of bonus factor of, gosh, they're out of pain. They feel less pain physically. And then mentally, they also have relief and thank goodness I'm not feeling that anymore. And so there can be an appropriate anxiety relief about their pain experience. Sometimes patients will get side effects from opioids that make them sleepy and allow them not to think about their situation. They may have an associated euphoria with this, but not always. Sometimes it's just simply be allowing themselves to be in a space where they don't have to think about their cancer or their life problems or whatever it is. Really importantly, patients often don't necessarily realize the type of relief that they're experiencing. The only thing they know is that they feel better when they take pain medication. And that's what they communicate is they just, it works for them, they feel better. Of course, the problem is that if they're truly getting euphoric relief, um, which is dumping of the reward system, this can progress to a substance use disorder. It's a pattern of situational escape uh, using a medication without dealing with the problem. And one or two times that this happens, fine, but a pattern of this happening can lead to issues. So how come we don't just let people do this? Because if they feel better, great. And the reality is that there's harm in treating pain with opioid-related euphoria, true opioid-related euphoria. First of all, you get rapid tolerance to the euphoria effects. So the doses of yesterday that worked no longer, longer provide 
that same type of relief. Leading to dose escalation, which results in neurotoxicity and can also negatively impact a patient's life experience because they're not the underlying cause of whatever their stress is is not getting addressed. And then you get increased risk of developing an actual substance use disorder. So substance use disorder is an actual diagnosis in the DSM-5 criteria with very strict criteria. Um, I'm not gonna go through all of this, but I, the point of this really is to say that the term substance use disorder should not be thrown around willy-nilly. This is actually representative of concrete criteria that patients must meet. And there's a very specific pathophysiology associated with the development of a substance use disorder that doesn't just happen with one-time use of a medication. It happens over time. There are brain changes that occur in substance use disorder involving these main areas. There's the prefrontal cortex, there's the basal ganglia, including the nucleus accumbens, which is the reward center. And then there's the extended amygdala, which is involved in fight or flight response. And so substance use disorder is a series of recurrent cycles. There's intoxication, which is a dopamine dump that occurs in the nucleus accumbens. Once that substance and that dopamine dump is over with and the sensation of euphoria is gone, there's a negative affect phase that is related to withdrawal from the substance. Stress hormones go up in response to not having the substance there. And over time, as these cycles go on, a few things happen. First, the dopamine dump can occur in the absence of the substance. So seeing paraphernalia or being in a familiar location where you've used a substance in the past can actually trigger the basal ganglia to fire and start this cycle all over again. Once it does fire, you get less euphoria with it and more stress associated with not having substance in the system. And these basal ganglia can actually develop habit circuitry that's so strong that it overtakes the ability to, of the prefrontal cortex to override it. It requires a lot of energy. And so what will happen is in somebody with substance use disorder, they have such active autopilot with this habit formation that it requires a really strong conscious effort to override those underlying circuitry, the subconscious circuitry. So the management of a substance use disorder is of course to break the cycle of cravings and use, to avoid triggers, to improve impulse control and develop positive coping mechanisms. And so this is the hallmark of uh, medication assisted therapy for the cravings piece and of counseling. There are things that we can do as clinicians to try to prevent a substance use disorder from developing. And once there has been a substance use disorder, we can also think about how do we reduce the risk of euphoria to help manage a patient's pain and other complex symptoms without putting that at undue risk for harm from their substance use disorder or at undue risk for developing a substance use disorder. So our medications 
go from low risk to high risk as far as what their likelihood is of resulting in euphoria. Of course, non-opioid agents have the lowest risk, whereas IV opioids have the highest risk of inducing a euphoria sensation, mostly because of how quickly their onset of action is. Um, I say all this because opioids have risks, but uncontrolled pain also has harm and actually has quite a lot of harm. Uh, psychological distress of having uncontrolled pain and living with uncontrolled pain should not be underestimated. But whenever we're looking at developing a treatment plan for a patient's pain, we wanna think about the benefits and the risks of the role of opioids in that particular pain syndrome. The benefits of using opioids when pain remains uncontrolled despite other lines of therapy can be improved function, reduced trauma. Uh, and then we need to counterbalance that with the side effects uh, and, the way, and the ways that people may or may not be coping. So getting back to our late night page here, which was the impetus for this whole talk, <clears throat> we have our patient who is complaining of 10 out of 10 pain and is asking for IV opioids. So when our approach, my suggested approach to the way to address this and my suggested approach to pain in general is to think about your patient as having these four types of pain that may be a possibility. Every patient kind of carries around four buckets. They have a bucket for nociceptive pain, peripheral pain, central pain, and existential pain. And our job is to figure out how full each of these buckets are for each of the patients that we're treating. We need to figure out how much of their pain is nociceptive, how much of their pain is peripheral nerve pain, and then design a treatment plan that's appropriate. We've talked a little bit about this. There are diagnostic clues for nociceptive pain, which is usually has an obvious source. We think about peripheral nerve pain as having um, particular types of features of the quality of the pain. Central pain syndrome or central neuropathic pain uh, is based on clinical suspicion and the pattern of how they're responding to pain medication adjustments. And then, some hallmarks of existential pain can be ex escalating medication without relief and having instantaneous relief from IV opioids can be another hallmark. And then sometimes folks will also have pain relief related to anxiolysis, although not always. So for our patient in our page, we wanna think about what's the differential diagnosis for this additional request of IV opioids using what we know. And it may be that we, there may be a new painful condition developing. It may represent a dose failure of our current medications. And this is actually fairly common, especially on the inpatient side. Either the PO opioid is underdosed compared to the IV, and we have tools to compare doses of oxycodone five milligrams to IV dilaudid, Incidentally, a milligram of IV dilaudid is 20 oral morphine equivalents, whereas five milligrams of oxycodone is seven and a half oral morphine equivalents. So when the patient says the milligram of IV dilaudid is working better, you bet it is. 
It may also be that the total dose of pain medication is insufficient. It may be that the patient has had a prior experience of uncontrolled pain and knows that the IV opioid will work more quickly to provide pain relief if the pain comes back. And they're fearful of going for a while without having anybody or anything respond to their pain. And so that fear of uncontrolled pain may be the driver behind the IV opioid request. It may be that the type of pain that they're experiencing is not responsive to the opioid or is only partially responsive to the opioid. Neuropathic pain responds to opioids, but generally only partially so. And then of course, existential or anxiety related pain doesn't always respond very well to opioids, nor does a central pain syndrome. <clears throat> I put this up here in tiny print, willful manipulation due to an actual substance use disorder is a lot less common than you'd think for requests for IV opioids in the middle of the night. These are the cases that stick with us, I think, because uh, from a provider standpoint, they can be one of some of the more challenging uh, cases, but it's actually all comers taken, not as common as you'd think. And so I think as clinicians, it's really, really important for us not to jump immediately there. So how are we gonna to talk to our patients about this? I think there's some very simple things that we can do as clinicians to build rapport quickly and do a good solid assessment of somebody's pain condition and come up with a plan. Tips to build rapport quickly and means sitting down in the room, actually taking that awkward moment to grab and drag a chair across the room if you need to, whatever it is, sit down and get on eye level with your patient. Take a thorough pain history. Taking a thorough history, asking about their pain now, how it compares to pain they've had in the past, prior pain experiences, pain, how their experience has been in the medical system with their pain management is a really quick way to show patients that you're listening and that you care and that you're taking them seriously. Very, very important to maintain a very neutral tone, an approach of curiosity and be non-judgmental. Patients are all often with chronic pain are already uh, can already have certain baggage with carried with them, feeling like pe people are going to think they're an addict or things like that if they're asking for pain medication. So very very important to maintain neutral tone. Do screen for mood or anxiety disorders. Screen for their over overall well being. <coughs> And finally, start a pain plan. Once you've done this whole assessment of the patient, start a pain plan with what you are going to do for their pain. Even if you're going to be stopping their IV opioids or reducing their doses, start with what you're actually going to do for their pain. Start with, we're going to continue XYZ medication. We're going to start an SNRI. We are going to blah, 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 and go through that whole spiel before you say, and to prepare you for the next phase of your care, if they're an inpatient, we're gonna reduce the dose or stop the IV opioid. And then finally, when you have a patient who has complex pain, 
it's really helpful to communicate with your colleagues about what exactly you think is driving the patient's pain experience. Is it the middle of the night and their family's gone and all of a sudden they are sitting there focused on their pain and that's why they're asking for more pain medication in the middle of the night? That might be it. So communicate with your colleagues about how you think the patient's doing with their pain and where their pain is coming from. And with that, we're kind of at our takeaway point here. So managing complex pain requires really careful attention to the patient's pain history and pain experience, requires careful attention to how they're describing their pain. It requires careful attention to the physical exam findings and the testing and it requires us as clinicians to put this whole picture together. Multimodal treatment plans for pain are, that's complex are essential. Substance use disorder is distinct from complex pain, and opioids play an important role in several types of pain syndromes. I've attached some references here to the end of my slides here. This is my email, and please reach out if you have any questions. Thank you so much, Sarah. That was a great presentation. Um, it was so helpful to hear about all the different forms of pain. Honestly, I had no idea that uh, several of them existed, such as existential pain. Um, to help differentiate patients who do have substance use disorder or who, who don't have them, are there any standard screening tools that you recommend for patients with complex pain and when you're evaluating them? Absolutely. There are quite a few screening tools out there for different types of substance use disorders. Some of the tools are really specific to one type of substance use disorder. For example, the audit or audit C for alcohol use disorder is a validated tool. For drugs of abuse, um, there is the DAST-10, that's D-A-S-T-10, uh, which is the drug abuse screening test. And there are several other validated tools like it. What's really, really important to know about those tools is that they are screeners only. They are not diagnostic. So the diagnosis of an actual substance use disorder requires a, a biological, a neurological evaluation and a psychological evaluation via interview to make sure that the patient actually meets the DSM-5 criteria for a substance use disorder. That's a great call out. Now, you know, um, speaking of mood, I've heard on multiple occasions, patients will tell me that the only reason that they're in pain is, or sorry, not the only reason they're in pain, the only reason they're depressed or the only reason they're anxious is due to their uncontrolled pain. And so they really feel that the only way to treat their mood is to treat their pain rather than vice versa. How do you tease out what came first and does it really matter for their treatment? Great question. I think that for acute pain causing acute mood changes, you're absolutely right. The, the patient's absolutely right. Treating their pain is very liable to relieve their mood symptoms if it's all happening kind of all at once and it's clear that one's causing the other. For patients, and this maybe is more likely in this scenario, for patients who experience chronic pain for months or years, it makes sense that there would be comorbid mood disorder or anxiety disorder related to that, related to the experience of dealing with chronic pain. But it's also important to recognize that 
a mood disorder is a distinct diagnosis. And if you meet criteria, if you have a mood disorder and you have a pain condition, it's helpful to treat both. My usual approach to patients who say, gosh, fix my pain and my mood will get better. If they've had pain for 10 years, I know that I'm not going to be able to fix their pain. They've had 10 years of pain and I don't have a medication that's going to reverse that. Clearly, they've been, uh, I'm sure they've had evaluation for their pain and have been on multiple different types of therapies. And so I'll explore that with the patient and just say, hey, we're, we can work on all this pain stuff. Let's focus on your whole well-being because it's clear that this pain condition has affected you. And how can we approach every domain of your health appropriately? Sometimes if you're having trouble with buy-in, then I, one of the nice things about chronic pain syndromes is that uh, SNRIs, tricyclics are often a part of that treatment plan. And so you can kind of double dip as far as the indication for those medications and help to get with patient buy-in while trying to build rapport with them and address their overall health needs. Those are great tips. Um, now, speaking of mood a little bit more, you mentioned CBT can be a helpful tool. Um, is that any specialized CBT or are most therapists able to provide CBT for pain? To my knowledge, there is not special CBT certification, cognitive behavioral therapy certification for pain management specifically. However, I do think that there is variable levels of provider comfort with different types of CBT applications and the relationship between the patient and the therapist really matters. So similar to how you might refer to cognitive behavioral therapy for other conditions, having a good therapeutic match is important and making sure that the therapist is aware of the reason for referral is also important. Okay. And then last question, what about marijuana? Is that useful for complex pain? Can it help? Or is that something you still steer people away from? Marijuana is a really hot button topic in the United States. And I think that we are slowly gathering evidence about it, but I think the jury's still out. Uh, our evidence pool is quite limited for complex pain syndromes. And it's really important to know, as we talked about, that complex pain in one person is not the same as complex pain in another person. So the systematic reviews that we do have for medical marijuana and the treatment of pain have very mixed results. And that's probably why. I don't think we have good information about what one pain, what medical marijuana will treat, how it will work for one patient versus another. And the at rate of adverse effects with medical marijuana therapy is reported to be quite high. <clears throat> Thanks, Sarah. I really appreciate you coming today and teaching us all about uh, complex pain. Um, why don't we finish up with one final key take home? Sarah? Ooh, boiling this all down into a key take home point is a bit challenging, um, but I think I have one sentence message. It's that managing pain is complicated and imperfect, but it can feel less onerous if you sit down, ask the right questions, have the right tools, and show genuine caring for your patients. Perfect. Thank you for joining us today. Don't forget, you can log on to our website at ccme.osu.edu for CME credit, MOC points, and to watch any of our other great programs. Next week, my colleague, Dr. Nate Richards, will be here to discuss immunization updates. That's all for today.
Thank you for tuning in and farewell until next time. Thank you.